We are a little over halfway through the epistle of Paul to the church at Colossae. And we've been noting that this part of the book, chapters 3 and 4, is chiefly to do with the behavior or the duty of the believer in light of the doctrine that we have learned in the first two chapters. We find here what I would describe as a description of the Christian and his character. In a believer's life, there ought to be, there should be, and I would go as far as to say there will be, a demonstration of the truth about Christ. The Christian life is exactly that. It's a life to be lived. It's not just a profession to be made. When somebody asks you, are you a Christian? You answer in the affirmative, yes, I'm a Christian. That's all well and good. But the Christian life is to be lived. And we are to show forth in our lives a demonstration of what the Bible speaks about concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to reflect that in how we live. And therefore, this third chapter of Colossians talks to us about holiness in the heart of the believer. And we've gone through various scriptures here, various verses that speak of what we're to put off and what we are to put on. But it also speaks of harmony in the church. And we'll get to that as we look at the section from verse 12 down through verse 17. Now, we've already noted the exhortations of verses 12 through 14. Let me read them to you again. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity or love. That's the word, which is the bond of perfectness. So we are to put on these that are like spiritual garments. We are to reflect Christ in this way, in how we live. Now, if we consider the words of verse 15 onwards, and keep in mind that this is a church epistle, in other words, it's not just written to individuals, but in a church setting, in a collective setting, to an assembly of believers, that will help us uh, as we consider that it's written to a local assembly of Christians. Uh, We can look at this in a slightly different way. Yes, it has application to us as individuals, no question, and we'll see that. But it also applies to the work of God collectively. And that is why he talks about, in verse 15, being called in one body. See, the church is a body. It functions like a body. Hands and feet and arms and head and so on. Christ is the head. The members uh, of the church, the people, are the members of the body. You are the body of Christ. The scripture says that in a number of different places, including here. So it's written to a local assembly of Christians at a place called Colossae. But it's very much apropos to our own situation and indeed to every generation. Paul didn't just write to the Colossians so that the Colossian church could think about these things and all other Christians could just ignore them. But this is the word of God. And it therefore applies to us in our day 
over 2,000 years later. Now you'll notice in chapter 1 of Colossians verse 2, just to refresh your memory, that in fact this epistle was written to a collective body. He directs the words, To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae. It's obviously written to that church. And again you see that emphasized in chapter 4 verse 16. And when this epistle or this letter is read among you, that's in Colossae, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. Laodicea and Hierapolis and Colossae were a triplet of towns that were near one another. And Paul, when he was writing to the Colossians, he made it clear that this letter was also to be read in the Laodicean church, that they might benefit from the same teaching. So, let's think about this. The section that we're dealing with here in Colossians 3 has to do with harmony in the church. But one great theme that arises straight away is that of the peace of Christ. The peace of Christ should reign over us as believers. Look at verse 15. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you are called in one body. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Way back in John's Gospel, chapter 14, the Savior said to his disciples, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And he closed out that great challenge and that great comfort to them with the words of verse 27. He said this, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. My peace I give unto you. That's the peace of Christ. And that is what Paul is referring to in Colossians 3. That the peace of Christ should reign over them. Now when you consider God's salvation, God's salvation brings peace to the heart of the believer. Whenever we come to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, when we ask Him to save us, to take our sins away, we immediately are in a position where we have peace with God. Romans 5 verse 1 puts it like this, Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When he talks about peace with God, we should understand that it's in the context of what he says in Romans 5 and verse 10. For if when we were enemies... There was a time when we were enemies of God and he was our enemy. We needed to be reconciled to God. That which was hindering us from fellowship with God, that which was was coming between us and God, had to be dealt with. And what is that? It's our sin. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 59 that God's ear is not heavy that it can't hear. His arm is not shortened that it cannot save. But he said, 
Your sins and your iniquities have separated between you and your God so that he will not hear. There's something that comes between us and God by nature. It's called sin. And it has to be dealt with. We are enemies of God. That's something that, that is emphasized in other parts of the scripture. For example, when we read in the book of Ephesians, he uses that kind of terminology when he refers to the fact that we are in a a position where our understanding is darkened. And he uses the word alienated. Ephesians 4 verse 18. Being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness or the blindness of their heart. Alienation. Alienation, when you're alienated from someone, it means that you're apart from them. There's something that comes between you. And what needs to happen is that we need to be reconciled to God. That was Paul's message to second, in 2 second Corinthians in the chapter 5. He said that God has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. And he puts it like this. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ... As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. There's a need for us to be reconciled to God. How does that happen? Through the death of His Son. Jesus bought peace for us through the blood of His cross. And didn't we notice that in Colossians? When we studied the first chapter, we said in verse 20 of, or we noticed in verse 20 of chapter 1, He said, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether there be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. So there's been this taking away of that which hindered us communing with God. When we come to Christ, we confess our sins. We believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We repent of our sins. He saves us. He gives us his peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But there's not only peace with God. There is what the Bible calls the peace of God. And we receive that as well as Christians. We read Philippians chapter 4 for our Bible reading, part of it. And there you will notice that he talks about prayer in verses 6 and 7. Be careful or anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Notice, and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The word that's used for keep there is a word that was known among the Gentiles as the word garrison. When there was protection by a Roman garrison of soldiers. This is what he's saying. The peace of God that passes understanding is going to garrison your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The peace of God. Peace of mind. Peace of heart. Why do we have that? How do we get that? Because we've been pardoned. We enjoy His presence within our souls. We are 
able to commune with him. He's our friend. He's not our enemy. He loves us. He cares for us. And when we have the peace of God guarding or garrisoning our hearts, none of the outward circumstances of life can destroy that peace. I want to emphasize that. It's so easy to get sidetracked and to get our eyes off of the Lord because of the circumstances of life. Many of which are calculated to destroy our peace. There are things that can come into our lives suddenly that can rob us of a deep-seated peace of God. And the devil knows that. And the devil wants to use things to cause us to be in turmoil rather than to be in peace. You know, there's a wonderful example of the peace of God in the life of a believer in Simon Peter. Simon Peter, according to Acts chapter 12, was imprisoned. Now, the reason he was imprisoned is because the wicked king at the time called Herod had already decided he was going to kill the leaders of the church. And so he put forth his hand, the Bible says, to vex certain of the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. The Lord allowed that to happen. The Lord did not preserve James' life at that time. He allowed him to be martyred. And it says that Herod, because he saw it please the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. And when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers, that means 16 soldiers, to keep him intending after Easter or Pasch, as the word is, to bring him forth to the people. He was going to kill him. He was going to execute him publicly. Now what do we find? The church began to pray for Peter. We read that in verse 5 of Acts 12. Peter therefore was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. And when Herod would have brought him forth, the same night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and the keepers before the door kept the prison. Now I ask you the question, if you knew that early in the morning you were going to be taken from a cell and have your head cut off, would you have been sleeping? Would I have been sleeping? Well, as we read on, we find in verse 7, And behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, And a light shined in the prison. And notice this. And he smote Peter on the side and raised him up saying, Arise up quickly. Now if you were to look at that word in the original Greek language, it's a very strong word. He had to give him a good thump to waken him. In other words, Peter was sleeping like a baby. He was sleeping soundly. Even though it was Herod's intention very, very soon, within hours, to cut his head off. Now, why was Peter sleeping like a baby, even though he was due to die the next day? Because Peter believed the words of the Lord Jesus. What words were those? You go back to John chapter 21, and Peter talked about death and dying. And the Lord said to him, Using these words of John 21 verse 18, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, 
When thou wast young, thou girdedest thyself and walkedest whither thou wouldest. In other words, you went wherever you wanted to go. But when thou shalt be old, notice that. When thou shalt be old, he's talking to Peter, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. So Peter was told by the Lord Jesus, when you're an old man, you're going to be crucified. That's how you will die. And Peter was there in the prison. He knew that Herod wanted to get him out of the prison the next morning and cut his head off. But Peter knew what Jesus had said. That's not how you're going to die. You're going to die by somebody carrying you where you wouldn't want to go. He talked about the death that he would die. In fact, history tells us that Peter, when he was crucified, said, I'm so unworthy to be like my Lord. He asked to be crucified upside down. And that's what happened. See, Peter was able to have the the peace of God in his heart because he believed the word of God. Someone said, peace is the smile of God reflected on the soul of the believer. Peace is the smile of God reflected on the soul of the believer. Again, Philippians 4 verse 7 says this, And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And in the same passage, verse 9, he says, And the God of peace shall be with you. Now go back to Colossians 3, verse 15. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts. That word rule literally means let it be the umpire or the referee. This is a word that was used in athletics. And by the way, Paul talked a lot about athletic competition. He talked about wrestling. He talked about fighting, about not punching the air. He talked about running the race. He talked about like the marathon uh, in in the Greek games when he said, let us run with patience the race that is set before us. And he talked about looking to the finishing line, uh, pressing toward the mark for the prize of the high calling. Whenever someone won Olympic competition in those days, they would be called up high to an exalted place in the stadium and they would put a laurel wreath on their head that they were the champion. And that's what he's talking about. When, when, when we go to be with Christ, he will give us the prize. So Paul was used to talking in these terms, like athletic competition. So he says, let the peace of God rule. Let it be the umpire of your soul. Let it be the referee. Now an umpire in those days, kind of similar to today, was someone who decided who could enter the competition if you were qualified. And he could also decide who needed to be disqualified because they didn't keep the rules. An umpire. A referee. Someone who decides what's right and what's wrong in a contest. Some of my soccer buddies don't like referees. But in regard to this peace of Christ, I want you to notice the control it provides to the believer. The peace of Christ, the peace of God, 
He says, let it rule in your hearts. Let it be the umpire. Let that be the referee for your conduct. In other words, the peace of Christ arbitrates or it acts as an umpire in the soul. What do I mean? Well, when there are decisions to be made by the believer. Sometimes there may be a conflict of impulses or motives. And the peace of Christ is that which steps in to decide which is to prevail. What's the decision to be made here? I read of some missionaries to the coal Indians in Mexico. And they were trying to find a word for peace that would translate from the English. And the translators came up with a word for those Indians which meant a quiet heart. Peace. A quiet heart. Now let me say this to you. When you face a decision regarding something, one of the indicators of the right course of action is a heart that is at peace. When a believer is in disobedience, he has no peace about what he's doing. The joy is taken away. Remember the psalmist David when he sinned against the Lord in a grievous manner with a woman called Bathsheba. He, he wrote a psalm of penitence when he came back to the Lord, when he repented of his sin. It's Psalm 51. Every time you read that, think about the fact that David wrote that as a penitent believer. And asked for the Lord's mercy in his life. But notice what he said in verse 12 of Psalm 51. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Notice he didn't say, restore unto me thy salvation. Because he never lost salvation. He never lost salvation. You can't lose your salvation. But you can lose the joy of your salvation. And that's what he prayed for. Restore unto me, Lord, the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. If you go back to Psalm 32, it's also a great penitential psalm of David. And from verse 3 of Psalm 32, he says, When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. He's talking about conviction of sin. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Selah. Then he says, I acknowledge my sins unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. He knew the Lord's forgiveness. Therefore he knew the restoration of joy and peace in his heart. Now how can I know the will of God regarding any given matter? How can I know what God's will is? The control of the peace of Christ determines that for us. We must let that peace be the umpire. Now let me just put in a little caveat here, a word of caution. You cannot allow just this idea of peace in your heart to be the controlling factor in a decision. Without regard to the word of God and without regard to prayer. Because you could actually say, well I'm at peace about this, I have a great peace about doing this. When in fact it's something that's contrary to the scripture. And if it's contrary to the scripture, I don't care how you feel about it, it's wrong. We have a wonderful example of that in Jonah, don't we? 
The book of Jonah is such a great book. It's so applicable to our own lives. Here we have Jonah, faithful prophet of God, but the Lord tells him to do something he doesn't want to do. See, Jonah was a very strong patriotic Jew. And he knew what the Ninevites, what the Assyrians had done to his people through the years. And when God told him, I want you to go and preach to them so that they might repent, Jonah's thinking, God's going to have mercy on those people. I don't want God to have mercy on them. I want Him to judge them. I want those people to be judged. That's what they deserve. And it's in that context that you read the book of Jonah and the word of the Lord comes to him and he says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and he went down to Joppa and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof. He went down into it to go with them into Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Let me read about this great storm that arose. But at the end of verse 5, But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay and was fast asleep. Jonah was at peace. But he wasn't doing the will of God. He was doing his own will. Jonah was in disobedience at this time, but he's sleeping. This is not the peace of God that's keeping his heart and mind. This is his own desire if he had thought about the thing properly he would have known that he was in disobedience to God he wouldn't have got on that ship and he wouldn't have tried to go the opposite direction to where God called him to you see we obviously have to obey God's word and where the word of God speaks clearly to something we must obey that That's why in the context of Colossians 3.15 you have verse 16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Don't forget about God's word. Don't forget what the scripture says. If you want to do what pleases Christ if you have a desire to do what pleases Christ he will give you an inner peace in your heart about what you're doing as the assurance of his will or On the other hand, he will withhold peace as an indication that it's not pleasing to him. But the whole key to it is that we have a desire to do his will. The Bible says, delight thyself also in the Lord and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. It's not a carte blanche. God's going to give you the desires of your heart without delighting yourself in his will. That's to be paramount in our minds. What does the Lord think about this? So maybe sometime you're wondering what to do in a given situation. What course of action to take? Like Yogi Berra used to say, when you see a fork in the road, take it. Well, that's not going to work because there has to be a decision made. And so what are you going to do in that instance? We're wondering what to do. We don't know what course of action to take. Here's what Paul says we're to do, we're to let the peace of Christ be the umpire. Like the referee in a football game, a soccer game. The referee is the one who rules that somebody has committed a foul or he's offside or whatever it may be. God's peace is the referee. He tells us in our souls, giving us peace or withholding peace. That what we're doing is either the right thing or the wrong thing. 
That's it. If you haven't got a peace about something after praying about it, after reading the Word, what the Word of God has to say about it, you still haven't got peace about it, then you cannot go in that direction. You mustn't. You've heard me use the illustration before, if it's doubtful, it's dirty. Honey, this white shirt in the wardrobe, is it washed or is it dirty? She says, if it's doubtful, it's dirty. You have to ask the question, something's wrong, doesn't smell right, doesn't look right, it's dirty. This is the way it is in seeking to establish the will of God in your life. And there's decisions that you and I have to make every day. And I don't know about you, but there's times when I wish I could just turn to the Bible and it says, Thou shalt do this on a given occasion. But you're going to find there's an awful lot of things where the Bible doesn't have a book, chapter and verse about that specific thing. But you're going to have to make a decision. And you make that decision before God. And there's an umpire, there's a referee in your soul that's going to be making that decision. And that decision is made before God as you pray, as you want His will. You're not wanting your own way, you want His way. Lord, help me to do the right thing here. And if you desire to do His will, the Lord will teach you His will. He'll lead you in the right way. There's the control that the peace of Christ provides. There's also the communion that it protects. Notice that let the peace of God rule in your hearts, let it be the umpire, to the which also you are called in one body. See, when there's peace in your heart, in doing the will of God, there's also going to be peace between you and other believers. And I think that brings in as well the whole issue of counsellors. There's a verse in Proverbs that says, In the multitude of counsellors there is safety. And that's a rule of thumb for Christians. There's something that is before you as a decision that you're to make. You're praying about it. You're seeking to find out what, it's, what the Scripture says about things like that. It may not be exactly written in the Bible, but there are principles there. There are things that can indicate to you what God might have you to do. But there's also the advice of other believers. And I'm talking about people who are walking with God. People who are praying people and you can talk to them and ask them what do you think about this knowing that you'll have to make a decision at the end of the day but in the multitude of counsellors there's safety when you have a group of godly men and one tells you one thing and about ten others tell you something else I think you probably should go with the ten All, all other things being equal if they're people who walk with God to which you're called in one body. If God's peace rules in our individual hearts, there's going to be a collective harmony in the church. And we are taught in the Bible to strive for the things which make for peace in the body. It's not a godly trait to be a troublemaker in a church. It isn't. Philippians 1 verse 27 says this, only let your conversation, that means your manner of life, your behavior, be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Let it be in keeping with the gospel. That whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs. That ye, notice it, stand fast in one spirit 
with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. See that? Unity. Cooperation. Oneness in the local body. He goes on in chapter 2 of Philippians to speak further about this. From verse 2. Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded. Having the same love. Being of one accord. Of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Let's not have selfishness. Let's think what's good for others, not just for ourselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And you're back to chapter 4, verse 2, where he's beseeching Euodius and Syntyche, two womenfolk, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Let us be as much as is possible and as much as lieth within us at peace one with another. There's a story told of two porcupines. You know what a porcupine is? There were two porcupines and it was winter. And so they huddled together to keep warm but they kept pricking each other. So they decided to separate but they in separating nearly froze to death. So they got together again, but the more they got together, the more they needled each other. That's just a little story. But that's like some church members who needle each other. And maybe porcupines can't help prickling one another, but people can. People can. Especially Christian people. And I might have to ask the Lord to take away the needles from me. Lord, help me not to be so prickly. Help me not to be like a porcupine sticking and pricking other people. Let us have the peace of Christ keeping us together in serving Him. You know, that's something we're to work at. You know, it's, it's not something that just comes naturally. It's something that we have to work at. That's why Paul said to the Ephesians in chapter 4 and verse 3, endeavoring endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's a precious thing. And we're to work diligently and hard at keeping the unity of the Spirit. And anything that's going to threaten that, we need to squelch it right away. You know, some things are not as we think them to be at times. This is a true story. There were two members of the same church. It was a fairly big church. And then these two people never spoke to one another. And the pastor noticed it over a period of time. He realized, I, I, I've never seen those two actually have a conversation. I've never seen them speaking. And so he went to one of them and he said, um, I just noticed this you know, over a number of years. I've never actually seen you speak to brother so-and-so. Oh, he says, that's because he never speaks to me. So he went to brother so-and-so and he said, you know brother so-and-so there? I've never seen you actually speaking with him. Never seen you have a conversation. Oh, he says, that's because he never speaks to me. So there they are. This guy says, he never speaks to me. He says, he never speaks to me. So they never speak. We are to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Work at it. We may not always gravitate to certain, certain people. 
there are certain people that we might have more in common with than others. That's, that's just human nature. But we still need to be civil and we need to be Christian one to another and seek to please the Lord in our relationships. See, we're all members of the same family if we're saved. You've heard the story of the group. I better not give the denomination because that wouldn't be fair. But there's a group of them in heaven. And they're all gathered there in heaven having a wonderful meeting. And some other believers from another denomination went walking past and they said, Shh, they think they're the only ones that are here. They think they're the only ones that are here. That's just a story. But we can have that spirit, can't we? And it's not right. May the Lord help us. There's something else here. The precepts of Christ should reside in us. See, this is as well as the peace of Christ reigning over us. The precepts of Christ should reside in us. And there's a connection. The word dwelling in us. Verse 16 of Colossians 3. Let. See, that's the same thing as verse 15. Let the peace of God rule. Here it is. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. This is something you're to allow to happen. Let the word of Christ dwell in you. You know what it means, dwelling? It means to be at home. That's what it means. Let the word of Christ be at home in you. And that's how we know if our peace of heart is the peace of God indeed. Because our hearts are filled with the word. And the word of Christ, by the way, is the Bible. You may have a Bible, a copy of the scriptures that is, that has all the words of Jesus in red. I don't know if you have a Bible like that, or have a Bible where all the words of Jesus are are green. There are Bibles like that, and they can be helpful in knowing who's speaking in in a particular context, in a conversation that's going on. But you know the only problem that I find with that? It can give us the notion that only the words in red are Christ's words. And that's not true. Because the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation is the word of Christ. Every bit of it. It's all his word. Every bit of it is his word. That's why he says, though heaven and earth will pass away, my word shall not pass away. He's talking about the whole Bible. The word of Christ is the Bible. And we're to let it dwell in us richly. Didn't Jesus say, search the scriptures? John 5.39. Search the scriptures. Don't just read it. Search it. Do you know that God always works through His Word and never, never in contradiction to it? Never. God will never tell you to do something that's contrary to what's written in the Bible. Never will do that. And if you study Psalm 119, there are various ways in which the Word of God is described. The law of the Lord, the judgments of the Lord, the statutes of the Lord, the commandments of the Lord, the Word of the Lord... All of these are the interchangeable terms. One of the things that it says is, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. If I have a lamp, that's something that illuminates where I am, the surrounding area where I'm standing, a lamp. If I have a light, that's something that shines on the path ahead of me. That's the way God's word is. It tells me where I'm at. It also tells me where I'm going, where I'm headed. It's a lamp and it's a light. We're taught that our steps are to be ordered in the Word. And I know that in 2 Timothy chapter 3, the Scripture says something about that. Here's what it says. 
2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. That means it's breathed out. God breathed it out. The word for inspiration here is the word from which we get the word pneumonia in English. It has to do with the breathing, with the breath. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine or teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, well-rounded, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. The Lord Jesus prayed that his people would be kept by the word. John 17, verse 17. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. If the Lord's word hath the proper place in our hearts, we're going to live right and we're going to pray right. The Holy Spirit's language is the word of God. He speaks in and by and through the scriptures. And if you compare Colossians 3, verses 16 through 19, with Ephesians 5, 18 through 22, it speaks of worship that is scriptural. Being filled with the Word of God produces the same blessings as being filled with the Spirit of God. To be filled with the Spirit means that we are truly controlled by the Spirit as He uses the Word of God in our lives as we live in obedience to it. The Word of Christ and the Spirit of Christ go hand in hand. One final thing, and that is, not only are the precepts of Christ to reside in us, but the praises of Christ should resound from us. The praises of Christ should resound from us. This is verse 16, as well as the last few words of verse 15. And be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Worship. Be ye thankful. And be engaged in praise and in prayer. Remember what the scripture says back there in Psalm 147. The first verse of that psalm. Psalm 147 verse 1. Praise ye the Lord. By the way, that's the Hebrew word hallelujah. That's what it means. Praise ye the Lord. For it is good to sing praises unto our God. For it is pleasant and praise is comely. There's a place in the scripture that says that God inhabits the praises of Israel. That's why it's always good to take part in the song service. Even if you're not a great singer, at least sing unto the Lord. Or as my pastor used to say, if you can't sing, make a joyful noise. Filled with his peace and filled with his precepts, we should overflow with his praise. Do we? Do we praise the Lord? Even in those times when we have big decisions to make, when we're in a bit of a quandary, when we face a dilemma, do we pray and do we praise? Do we thank the Lord even for putting us in that situation? Because when you think about it, 
a lot less praying would go on if we were not in times of trouble. The Lord allows troubles and trials and dilemmas into our lives to keep us seeking after him. So may the Lord help us to do that. And may we let the peace of God rule in our hearts. And may we let the praises of God resound from our lips. May God help us and bless his word to us for his name's sake. Amen.